The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. You can find us at fantasy-animation.org and on that website you'll find all kinds of weekly blog posts, discussion forums and all manner of ways to get involved in the conversations about fantasy cinema uh, and the medium of animation. You can find us on Twitter at fananimresearch, that's F-A-N-A-N-I-M research. Um, or you can find us on our Facebook page, uh, same thing, fan and in research uh, at Facebook, or just search it in the, in the search engine. Many ways to get in contact, please do get in touch with us and take part in the conversations, but for now, please do enjoy the show. Now then, I wonder where these pogles are. I think they'll most likely be fast asleep in bed at this time in the morning. Well, Pogles aren't very good at getting up in the mornings. They like to lie in bed pretending it's still night time. Now, where is there a hedgehog, I wonder? Let's have a look. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast for another week's talking about the relationship between fantasy storytelling and the medium of animation. Uh, I am, of course, Alex Sargent. I am, of course, Chris Holliday. And, of course, we are pleased to welcome uh, Simon Costin onto the podcast uh, this week, uh, the director of the Museum of British Folklore, uh, who's going to talk to us about many things, uh, but we're particularly excited about talking about Oliver Postgate's uh, Pogles Wood uh, and the delights of that. Simon, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining us. No, pleasure. Thank you. Uh, so, we always um, give our guests free reign to uh, pick whatever they think fits the mantra of fantasy and animation mm-hmm. and, and having chatted briefly over email about this with you we we came to you came to a sort of very enthusiastic agreement that what you wanted to talk about was Pogles Wood so we'd like to start with an easy question why Pogles Wood um how what struck you about the fantasy element of that and the animation of that perhaps you could talk about sort of your background and what it is that you're particularly interested in talking about with this this uh, show yeah well Pogles Wood was um it, it, so influential on my on my upbringing in a way because um, I was quite obsessed with it to the extent that I actually recreated the set and built a papier-mâché tree trunk and made Mr and Mrs Pogel and all the rest of it and uh, my parents ended up sending a photograph of it to the Beeb um, and Oliver Postgate very very sweetly wrote back months and months later including a little photograph of the Pogels in fact that one and um, I was beside myself with that. And uh, I, did, I think why it interested me as a child was that it dealt with this sort of idyllic vision of the countryside and then put into it these kind of quite, this, this kind of quite strange family unit because Mr. and Mrs. Pogel were obviously of an age where they didn't have children and Pippin was... Um, a child of the Fae. He was he was given to them. They adopted him, um, so he was a sort of fairy child, magical child. And then there was Tog. God knows what Tog was supposed <laughs> to be. I guess he was a squirrel, but <laughs> I imagine he was a squirrel. <clears throat> and then you had the talking plant, a magic plant in the garden. So there was this incredibly fantastical um, landscape that it conjured mm-hmm. up, and it was done in this incredibly naive very immediate way that kind of stop motion animation technique that they, they developed working out of their, their, their cow shed in their at the back of the house it's really it's a, a you know i hadn't seen this um series before but i had grown up watching a few of the the other watch with mother sort of cartoons these mm. are like andy pandy and things like that and there are certain you know talking plants and this sort of mixture of the absolutely sort of magical and otherworldly with this quite sort of uh, humdrum, uh, yeah. cosy British sensibility, whatever that means, and that's mm-hmm. a, quite a hallmark of British fantasy. So it was, it was nice to watch, and, and it's always nice to hear sort of childhood influences. Do you do you think things like the Pogels might have been an influence on what you went on to work with, with your uh, work with the museum and things like that, and what you're what you're doing now, or am I stretching uh, the point? Uh, oh to, well, to, to no, because uh, at the time I was looking at watching the Pogels, there was um, a fantastic Reader's Digest book. Um, I think it was called Myths, Legends and Folk Tales of Britain. And uh, I think it came out in 1972, something mm. like that. But it was like my Bible as a child because it, um, it went region by region. <clears throat> so whenever we went on holiday, I could look up, oh, we're going to wherever it was, Cornwall or Tintagel or something, and you could look up that district mm-hmm. and find out which 
folk tales were connected to it or if there was a seasonal custom happening or so um yes that, that's that's it, it sort of tapped in the pogles tapped into the the, the folk tales really that mm. i was reading in that book because uh, they are mini folk tales you know they the first season uh, featured a witch mm-hmm. who was deemed too scary to reappear when it was renamed Pogles Wood because it was originally the Pogles, I think, and changed. But the BBC actually said, no, you can't have her. She's far too scary for kids. Yeah, she, I mean, she have is quite scary. It? She is yeah. quite yeah, scary. Yeah, she's yeah, very yeah. scary. Um, I was struck by how scary and, and, and f- folkloric in that sense of the, the sort of bittersweet nature mm. of folklore, which is that folklore isn't cuddly often it's, yeah. it's it is kind of it's all the edges kept in and that's, there's something really fascinating about that first season's yes. approach to the folkloric because yeah. it, it has all the edges left in spikes and the teeth left on which is yeah, great yeah. um all coupled with the animation um uh sort of process that's, absolutely that's process but it's funny because the two things that have come out i think these sort of in- the introduction to um, certainly, uh, Pogles and, and Pogles Wood for me was was sort of this podcast. I'd not really, mm-hmm. I'd not really heard of it. Obviously, I'd heard of small films, and I'd heard of Peter Furman and Oliver Postgate. And being somebody who uh, is sort of uh, born and bred in Kent, this is a studio um, kind of connected, I guess, to the area that I grew up in. I live very close to Bleemwoods, which, as you said, was the um, kind of the place where small films originated, really. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, although I'd heard of small films, and I'd heard of they're perhaps more famous. And we were talking a little bit about this before the podcast started. They've got a more famous work, uh, Bagpuss perhaps, Clangus, stuff like this. Mm. Uh, and whether or not po- the, the Pogles... I keep wanting to, wanting to say the Pogues, but it's not <laughs> Christmas yet. Um, like the, the Pogles, uh, uh, Pogles and Pogleswood, um, whether or not that is a, I don't know, a forgotten, something forgotten about it. Um, but actually one of the things that struck me just as you were talking, the kind of combination of the naivety, as you said, which is a really interesting way, I think, to describe stop motion. So this is a very much a stop motion series. The naive elements of stop motion production, coupled with what you just said about folklore, is something where the edges are kind of kept in all the, the spikes, the spikes of folklore, um, seem a perfect fit. You know, as I said, I don't think this program could have been done in any other way. There is something quite charming and quite imperfect, or charmingly imperfect, about the way that stop motion is used to relay these certain kinds of narratives. Um, and so. My my perspective on having watched um, kind of a cross section of episodes, both from the first and the second series. The first series, as you said, six episodes, eight episodes, yeah, but six, six episodes um, when it was uh, titled The Pogles, uh, and then when it kind of came back for a slightly longer run as Pogles would. Um, having watched episodes from both of those series, what sort of I think struck me is the role of craft. I think that's that's mm-hmm. certainly interesting to me as somebody who's um, interested in animation. The role of craft, craft practices, labour, um, and this is something that's gaining a little bit of momentum. I think certainly within our animation studies. So it'd be nice to talk about the handmade quality, mm-hmm. handmade television within a British context, Britain's connection, British animation's connection to these kinds of craft practices. Um, so I think there's lot, lots to lots to sort of pick out and and, and pull apart and see. Yeah, it was something I wasn't really familiar with, but it's quite enchanting and quite—I don't know. Certainly, the first series was very unnerving in a way, and, and mm. so I quite—I I quite enjoyed that. I quite enjoyed being unnerved by yeah. something I wasn't really a talking plant, a magic being. I wasn't really sure how to feel, but I thought it was a really great, kind of quite experimental in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, so we'll try and pull yeah. it apart. I think. Yeah, I'm interested. Uh, you, what you said, Simon, um, um, a few moments ago about um, it, it spoke to folkloric elements. So there is something about this series that you think. Of all these kind of, you know, you know, there's quite a few British stop motion animations we could have picked, but with this one, there is something there that taps into the spirit of English folklore and British folklore mm. that you that you you work so closely in. So I wonder before we get into the nitty gritty of plot, character, what happens, yeah, yeah. stuff like that, could you just speak a little bit more as to what you think about this series has that element? What are the elements of it that speak to that? Is it a tonal thing? Is it uh, an iconographic thing? Um, is it um, too difficult to articulate? I have a habit on this podcast of asking impossible questions. <laughs> and usually I'm the target. Yeah, so, it's really so, nice. So, Simon, it's okay. your, so it's ten your, minutes in, you're the victim me. today. Yeah. 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 Now, I think there's something, um, the link for me looking at it retrospectively now is the, the air of uncanniness that it had. Mm. Um, because it's set within the for- deep within the forest and there's also that thing that uh, you, you're unlikely to actually spot the pogos, so mm-hmm. that they 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 sort of occupy this liminal space, if sure. you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, you're as a child, I was desperate to see them. 
you know, if you ever went to the woods or live near an Epping Forest, because you're always looking for, you know, something living in a tree stump or whatever it was. Yeah. It's just, I think it's just in everyone's, every child's psyche. And so, um, yeah, it's the uncanniness, I think, that links for me with, with a lot of folk tales and folk stories. Um, and they explore that in, 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 in some, of the, some of the tales, because it all the plant, the magic plant, will illustrate a story mm. during the episode, which yeah. will become drawn animation. Um, and often those were fairy stories, or would, in, would involve fairies, or fairy folk, or you know, mm. stories like that. So yeah, no, I think that's it. Was the uncanniness of it, though? I think that's what appealed to me. So is, is is folklore uncanny? Elements of it certainly are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think what what I enjoyed as a child, first going to see regional seasonal customs, whatever you want to call them, was the that they re- seem to represent a moment of true magic. That it's it would be a community of people who, for one day or one period of time during the year, would become something else. They would become truly magical. They would either be wearing costumes or masks, or mm. and they become other. They become something uh, out of their day-to-day lived experience thereof. Mm. And, and that's what's always fascinated me about folklore, is that it gives people the opportunity to become something else for a short, for, for a short time. And that's not peculiar to England. Every culture has that, particularly in their folk festivals. Well, I think that's a really interesting parallel with something like, and of course, with my animation hat on, as it as often is, mm-hmm. um, thinking about, yes, the uncanny quality of the narratives that are themselves replicated in the uncanniness of animation, in particular the three-dimensional stop-motion animation mm-hmm. of which this, this sort of series is produced, um, the, how the uncanniness is rooted in the medium. But this idea of kind of true magic I really like, that there's something kind of true magic and ritualisation, ritual practices. Uh, I think if you talk to a lot of animators, they think about the ritualism of their work, you know, the labour of their work and the kind of the way that they for a short period get to be something else mm. they get to play with these objects and 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 inhabit and the act the animator is performer the animator is actor for a short time they get to perform voice artists get to perform as somebody else for a short time or something else and there's so there's a nice mm. moments here or sort of sort of relationships between the uncanny quality of i mean i don't really know much about folkloric traditions i'm deferring to the other people around the table uh, at this point um but certainly the way that you're speaking and, and it seems like a perfect fit, you know. Fantasy, who knew fantasy and animation are a perfect well, fit? A good fit? Well, <laughs> if, if it, they weren't, we wouldn't have much of a podcast, Chris. Um, sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, typical academic, I'm, I'm just like, interested in defining our terms a little bit, which is uh, this idea of the uncanny and what we're using this to mean because I, I find it's a term that's, that's banded about and it can often mean very little for that reason. So I just wonder sort of, whether my definition would fit with what you're saying, but by both of you here, in that sort of my perspective on the uncanny, um, and there's a bit of folklore writing on fairy tales and folklore that sort of explores this. Jack Zipes is a scholar that writes a lot about the uncanniness of, of, of fairy tale culture mm. as something that sort of is about the, the sort of limits of perception and, and actually exploring our own inability to understand the world. And if you look at sort of even like the Freudian definition, the uncanny is the the unheimlich in, in the heimlich, the not known part of our knownness of the world and things like mm. that. So it's so I'm interested in but often we mean it to usually we mean it as a synonym to mean scary, right? So yeah. so I'm well, unnerving, I yes. think more than more than scary, I sure. think unnerving, unsettling. Um, so on one level, the uncanny um, is about our lack of perception of the world, or it dramatises our inability to f- feel confident in our understanding of the world. And yet, folklore has been theorised as something that, in many ways, tries to plug that gap or provide an outlet for mm. that. Um, I mean, none of this is about Pogel's Wood just yet, but it's <laughs> it's certainly a question about. Sort we'll of, do that um, later. We'll do yes. certainly a question yeah. about is this a, is this is this um, when you're using the word uncanny? Do you do you mean it in terms of uh, folklore's ability to expose um, our lack of understanding of the world, or or is it about a sort of comforting device? I guess it might probably be a bit of both. No, I think. Well, yes. Yeah. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I think uncanny in in relationship to folk customs is it's the thing that you know, films like The Wicker Man traded on. It was that aspect that human beings can become something else, which is potentially quite dangerous, mm. as well as being uh, celebratory. And uh, you know, most of those seasonal customs are about 
a celebration of some sort, either bringing them, uh, the community together to celebrate an event that happened in the past or a seasonal uh, change of seasons or whatever it is. But often, as an outsider visiting those customs, you A, they're done specifically by the community for the community. So you often feel, as an outsider, slightly... Um, at unease because you're not actually part of that unless you're put, you were born in Ottery St Mary or wherever we're talking about. So it, they're uncanny in so much as you're witnessing people behaving in a way that you never see them normally behave. And if you've been to Ottery St Mary ever, they run with flaming barrels on their backs into the crowd, and it's it's yeah it's really kind of visceral and bloody and. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm trying to define uncanny how I think of <laughs> folk tales as being uncanny, but yeah. Well, I mean, from an animation perspective, the word uncanny is, is is rooted in these kinds of things, but has a different, it has a technological element, I think, because when we think of the uncanny in animation studies, we think of the uncanny valley, and when we think of the uncanny valley, mm -hmm. we think of an emotional response, or I suppose a dip, a dip in an emotional response to something that looks human-like or too human-like. Um, and therefore we recoil because we're not used to seeing humanoid figures that are too real. There is a sort of sense of, of uber-reality. So and I'm going to read the name out because I always get it wrong. Uh, Masahiro Mori in 1970 coining this idea of the uncanny valley. Um, our revulsion, our, un, our, our feelings of unfriendliness or uh, distancing towards things or towards objects and, and things that are connected to our reality but are so close that we feel uncanny we like our animation to be stylized and exaggerated and clearly cartoony because it keeps us in that safe space mm. of spectatorship yeah. whereas uncanny the uncanny valley is an, an animation that sits within the uncanny valley it's inability to cross it where it's so real it, it, it conjures these feelings of, of sort of revulsion um, which seems to be different to the way that i would describe Pogleswood as as uncanny insofar as I think it's rooted in the medium. Again, it's a technological thing, but it's rooted not in the ability to replicate real life so perfectly that it makes me feel uncomfortable. The uncanniness of something like Pogleswood for me is rooted in the kind of staccato, jarring, jerky movements of both the characters themselves yeah. as they move through the space, yeah. but also the space itself. And there's something really interesting about the kind of visible trace of labour within the world of Pogleswood where you're seeing you're seeing the stuff that's happening you know, in between the frames. Classic animation definition. What's more important in animation is actually the things that happen, that you don't see, things yeah. that happen in between the frames. You know, yeah. um, So I, that for me, yeah, I'm used to thinking about uncanniness in a, in a sort of technological, digital sense, when actually, yeah, this seems to, the word uncanny fits, for me anyway, in the way that I would register something like Pogles would. Alex thoughts yeah. you're kind of yeah, quizzically yeah. No, you're, I, you're I, pulling the face I, that I often pull when you ask me an impossible question so I am um, no I was, thinking, I was thinking about how that actually plays out in a lot of the narrative and the, the sort of the, the setup of each episode isn't it is that like we go into the woods is that oh there's the I hedgehog yeah uh, the pogles will be that. behind you know the, the, this idea of probing the unseen aspects of life the bits in the woods that we never get to mm, there's yeah. there's all the, you know and and um there, it certainly has that that playing out within it, and I was also thinking when you were speaking about the, the design of the pogles, and Simon's got his pogle annual out here. Oh, if, this, if there was, if there was know, a video in here, you, you'd be able to see we've got annuals from various um, years. What years are we? Because the, the series is, itself, uh, seventy-one. The series wow. itself, or well, the first run of the series was sixties. Is that right? Six, mid sixties. Yes. Mid sixties, mm, um, yeah. and then the second run was slightly later on. Yeah. Um, I th think it finished in 73 or something. Or not, or yeah. yeah. I'm not quite sure, but yeah. And the design of the Pogles are, are and I think they're identified as not as human, right, in the, in the show. They're little magical folk, yeah. right? Yeah. Some sort they're of almost like nondescript. But of course, they look quite human. They're, it, yeah. they're, 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 they're the humanoid surrogates. Yeah. And you often find that in fantasy fiction is that the, the characters we're asked to identify with closely are usually not humans, but human surrogates, mm. whether that be, you know, um, hobbits in Lord of the Rings, or, or in this case, these sort of, um, sort of potato-like um, creatures <laughs> that yeah. hang around with these slightly more um, yeah. outlandish creatures that are the source of the uncanny. Mm. Um, so I guess it's this question of, of, of the unseen and, what, and, and revelation. Yeah? Folklore is, is a relevant, revelatory practice, or at least mm. it, it, it can be. Um, and this idea of what one reveals and sometimes what can reveal is quite scary because it's that, and that's when we get to the realm of comedy. But sometimes it's very comforting to, to have things revealed and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, it's 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 uh, 
it's a it's an interesting series that plays with some of these ideas, yeah. particularly and, the, the structure yeah. of them, the first series. And yeah, things. well, I was thinking about what you said earlier, Simon, about your obviously your relationship to the series as a child, and and when you first saw it and you became fascinated by it, and you wanted to replicate and and build this this set mm. that ultimately um, kind of got official the official stamp of approval. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but obviously, the series itself to give a bit of background because I'm not well. I'm sure our listeners are, knowing that there's going to be a podcast on Pogles, they'll probably have looked it up. Yes. So thank you for that in advance, listeners. Um, but obviously, this was a series that was aimed at children, yeah. largely. Um, and you said at the, at the beginning that there was a bit of conflict because it was sort of too scary for children. And, and so did you well, feel it was that... one particular character. Yeah, one particular be, character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so what was your experience of watching it? Before we kind of go into the narrative, I guess, of or try and attempt to, to plot some of the, the narrative... Um, components of the series uh, given what Alex said about discovery that every episode begins with a, where should we find the, mm. the pokers and we go in and I was thinking about children and their ability to explore and their desire to explore and find things and look in hollow stumps and things yeah. um, were you scared by this program when you first watched no, it or, was, or was, was it just fascination and it was, was it... just complete enchantment really I think yeah. enchantment's a, a very good mm. description <clears throat> because it conjured up a world that you know, as a child, you wanted you wanted them to exist. You wanted to be able to be able to see them trundling around doing whatever they were doing. But sure. um, I think enchantments rather than skin. Yeah, because well, the first episode, uh, well, a lot of the episode titles I think are really telling. You have mm-hmm. things kind of connected to um, kind of magic and mystery that I think then does shift in the second yeah, series. Yeah, the second series bit. often yeah. calls things like woodwork and yeah. things like that. Yes. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. But the first episode, yeah. The Magic Bean, you know, yeah. I think that's, that's yeah. where the, that's... Um, so should we have a go at trying to establish some... Sure. Some uh, kind of certainty within this uncanny world of the Pogles. Sure. So, so the first... <laughs> I mean, I, if I take the Viso Bowles at liberty, the first season, The Pogles, has a pretty... Um, linear narrative throughout the six episodes which is very different in the second the second mm. seasons and on um, and it's basically what was what happens what's the ba- the narrative beats is we're introduced to Mr and Mrs Pogel uh, they um, encounter the, or a child is dropped at their door by the fairies yeah Pippin um, P- the child Pippin. who then becomes a character in the sort of second series yeah um, Pippin um, is yeah a child of the woods, a child of fairy culture. Yeah. Is, is this is this am I right so far? They're they're nodding, listeners. So okay, he's not getting it wrong so <laughs> no. far. Um, then they get encounter this witch who wants the child as some sort of sort of powerful, mm. sort of like the chosen one esque sort of narrative. Um, tries to take them off the child off the pogles and um, threat evil lurking ensures and the pogles ultimately triumph and save the, the, this, this child of the fairies and are blessed by the fairy king with a talking plant if I remember right yes. well, at least there's a wish granting plant <coughs> an alcoholic talking plant oh really I've, yeah. I missed that bit <laughs> yeah. he, uh, he what, likes what? bilberry wine I think he's, he's always yeah <laughs> what? joke for the adults there and the, yes the, yeah so, so, so we'll start with that one and then, and then the second season oh, is, second seasons I should say um, is more about sort of episodic, much more sort of cutesy micro uh, narratives. Yeah. Mr. Pogel builds, goes to the beehive, Mr. Pogel. And clearly it must be in response, I would have thought, to some of the reaction. It's slightly more educational in tone. Mm. The yeah. one you were talking about, the, the carpentry episode, yeah. it's, it begins, I think, Pippin's trying to build something, he can't, and the plant actually gives him a lesson so it's in, in, in construction and that's so they the second series did have this sort of um, educational slant to it or they you learnt about bees and bee beekeeping yeah. and the production of honey so they, they yeah they became less fantastical and more educational that's interesting well for two reasons one when you said fantastical I could sense Alex is sort of perked <laughs> upright um, but I think there's something that the second series for me, or the second seasons for me, um, I anticipate how a lot of, kind of children's television animation is today. And, and I'm, I'm not going to say Bob the Builder, but the, way, the educational role and these sort of micro-narratives where uh, things happen, there's an obstacle that, uh, that needs to be overcome, it's overcome, and we're, we're, we're back into the... Like, it's a serial, but it's, it's individual episodes that are based around a particular conundrum or a particular yeah. event or a moment. <clears throat> and there's something quite interesting about that shift from the first six episodes which are very, as you say, enchanting, magical, mystical, that are rooted in uh, yeah, the, un- the uncanniness of uh, the British countryside and the, and the region aspect, which hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the fact that these characters have, have sort of 
difficult liminal accents. Yeah. Accents <laughs> are difficult to place. Um, how that 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 does shift in the second um, and later episodes, I think, towards I don't know something a little bit more practical. Or... Oh, Pippin, Pippin, you mustn't go hitting things with a hammer just because what you're trying to make doesn't come right. Making things in wood is not easy. It is quite difficult. And you must learn how to use the wood the proper way if you want to make things properly. But I want to get this chair and table ready before Mrs. Pogle comes home. Well, this time I will see if I can help you with a little magic. But first I want to tell you an old story about a carpenter. Are you ready? Shut your eyes. Tight shut. Good. Now, open them. There. Like there's something that's that's not that's grounded. I think that's what I mean. That the first six episodes are difficult to get a, a handle on. Yeah. There's a lots of sort of stuff going on, and and, and lo lots of the animation techniques that are used. There are moments of superimposition. I think it's in the second episode, the, uh, a silver crown. That has the fairies oh, yeah. um, in the background, which I thought was really great and has a different animation style. I like the fact that there were sequences where you don't see animation at all. You just hear the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Pogel, inside, often at the start of an episode. The stop motion element to it, the, the hedgehogs and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and then later on it becomes, I don't know, a lot more grounded. There's lots of things that happen. It's, it's making stuff, it's doing stuff, it's... It's working, it's kind of, I don't know, there's something quite practical and grounded about the, the mm. second series. Whether or not that means that the fantasies receded, is that, mm. is that true, it, As think? a child, it didn't seem to, because you're, oh, you're still so in, involved in their world that it didn't, didn't really matter that it was, it had that more educational grounded yeah. side. It didn't, you were still, I mean, the, 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 talking about the animation styles, when they went outside and actually filmed yeah. in, in, the, in the woods... It, you've got things like the leaves all know, stuttering and moving it? because the wind's blowing, but sure. they're you know, using the stop motion. It's, so it, it it's in the countryside, but it's not the countryside we know because it's ah. being it's it's being used in an in an animated way. So, but everything's moving in a strange way, ah, or, and the leaves do strange things on the ground because they've obviously shifted in the wind a bit. Or yeah, I've got lots to so. say. I've got lots. Strap in, everyone. I've got lots to say about this <laughs> this sort of thing. I, um, it gives these woods a sort of hallucinatory thing yeah, 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 as yeah, you're watching it. Which again, that's yeah. this idea of the un of an uncanny real. You're seeing the woods, but you're not seeing the woods, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. real, but unreal. Well, that's, so that's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. I think, given we think of animation's invisible labour, like you're seeing stuff move, but you're not seeing how it was moved. Like there's something kind of estranging about that. Uh, equally, the as you say, the landscape moves on its own and has this sort of uh, quality where it's always, you know, it's an agent somehow that it's moving, and 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 that is quite disturbing. I like the idea that the animation has the ability to animate live action that the that the live action itself is the footage the live action footage of in the woods mm. is becoming animated it's it's and that that causes that that kind of discomfort um yeah i've got lots i think the the idea of visible labor and trace and being able to sort of see the thumbprint if you like in, in mm. some of the characters the way that they move um is very in some ways it's very specific to stop motion and there's lots of writing around um, British animation, really. British animation, European animation has a connection to stop motion in a way that perhaps American animation doesn't really. American animation is very much geared towards, I think, cell animation and computers and digital, yeah. whereas British animation perhaps has more of that sort of, um, and rightly or wrongly, kind of the gendered connotations often of craft practices. People in, not in studios, but in the back of their garden, garden sheds, that sort of mm. thing, that, that bespoke quality to craft practices more generally. Um, but there's something, you know, I'm thinking obviously Aardman is probably a good example and they've worked very hard to retain that, that reputation as uh, imperfect. Mm. They make imperfect animation, putting thumbprints into their work and, mm. and so forth. Um, but it, there is a precedent in cell animation. So cell animation has that quality and it's called boiling where people used to draw and then do a second drawing and the drawings didn't quite match up. So when you do a flip, like a flip book, when you're drawing a flip book and each individual <coughs> image is slightly different, mm. And it just flickers in a way that you're not... This sort of estranging. And, and a lot of... Dan Tor has written a, a piece on bo boiling animations. And the animation seems to... Or the images seem to boil. 
and stuff like that. And fizz and yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that's I think that's really interesting. Um, so it is something that happens in cell animation, but it also you know stop motion is where I think we see that kind of boiling, if you like. Sure, and the woods are boiling. The woods are boiling. The, 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 yeah, the photographic exactly. elements are are, are are reflecting of that. Yeah, um, I've got I've got a sort of a, a half baked theory here that I'll throw out there, and let's see if anyone uh, goes with me or tells me it's wrong, which would be. Not the first time. Not be the first time or the last. Um, Which is, you're talking about sort of the role of magic in both of these things. To me, actually what we have our, from my crude understanding of the widespread practice of folk, whatever that is, you get a shift from sort of a folk narrative that has all the sort of fairy tale, folk storytelling, very dramatic shifts in beats, outside magical agents coming in, usually within a woodland sphere, but not always... Um, you know, inflicting these magical forces on these poor unsuspecting souls and then disappearing without rhyme or reason. Mm. There's some certain beats to lots of sort of traditional folk stories within that in the first season. And then the second season, it becomes much more interested into sort of, I don't know, folk practice and folk craft and the and mm. building and making and, 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 and yeah, the sort of the, the, the folk practice of, of making things mm. and, and making imperfect handmade objects as an expression of community and all these sort of things. Yeah. So is, is it maybe a case that they're both as folkloric as the other? It's just one is sort of more invested in folk storytelling and the other one in sort of folk culture or folk practice? Or, uh... Yeah, I mean, in, in the second series, you also got um, film footage, like I mentioned, of beekeeping. Yeah. Or, so they were sort of rural practices that you got an insight into. Um, and living in a city, I was born in London, so yeah. you know, seeing bees and how honey was produced mm-hmm. was absolutely fascinating. So yeah, the second series does actually look at kind of rural folk practice then, in a way that the first one didn't. Well, no, a, a, a quick rundown of episodes. And so I think, as you say, the kind of rural um, activities that yeah. go on. Uh, we've got the first. If we compare the first episode of the first series, The Magic Bean, to the first episode of the, the sort of the, the reboot, if you like, I'm not going to say reboot, uh, grains of wheat, milk, <laughs> from, the, milk yeah. from the dairy, yeah. sheep's wool, eggs yeah. for breakfast. These are very different, um, yeah, these are very different narratives. Um, and, and, I, I, and I can't help feel ja- ma- the Magic Bean is, is sort of a, a Jack Beanstalk, Jack the Giant yeah. killer, kind of riffing on reference there. You know, it seems to at least be dealing with similar broad brushstrokes there. Yeah. I wonder, like, you know, um, I mean, you, you, your organisation, Cyber, has sort of um, managed to gather some traction uh, online, very um, large amounts of traction online, I should say, actually, um, in a world of digital and a world of computers and everything. And, and I know animation studies are very interested in what we won, what, how, the appeal of the handmade in a post... Yeah digital age mm. and, I, and i wonder what the you know if we showed the pogles now what it maybe maybe it would get its you know in in the in the age where you know hipsters are are building beehives above their uh, house and things like that <laughs> yeah. and things like that maybe it's time for the pogles to have a, a, a renaissance here because because we've not only have sort of a more interest in in handmade art on screen but a sort of it has has folk arisen as a practice as a result or has it had to reckon with the shift to digital, or has digital actually become quite an empowering? Um, I guess it's a good way of communities to talk, is yes. it? Or things yeah. like that. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just trying to think. I haven't really noticed any radical change in folk practice over the last 30 years due to computers or mobile phones, or yeah. perhaps it's better to organ, you know, uh, organization or tours for when people get lost on procession or whatever it is. But <laughs> in terms of the structure and the, the texture of those events, I don't, I don't think that the digital has actually had very little impact. I mean, obviously, you get everything's recorded in a way that it wasn't back then. Everyone's got their mobile phones out. You know, there's the Padstow, Obios counters around Padstow. Um, and woe betide if you get in the way, because they do smash your phone. Is there, is there a, a, a version <laughs> to this, then? within you know oh no it's just um idiots who think they can uh, join in or they want to get their best picture and get in the way of the actual procession when they should be respecting what that community is doing mm. and uh yeah so do you think, do you think the appeal of these sort of folk events might be that the, you know it, it I mean, as, as as also living in london and things like this uh, it's it gives us an aspect of of a lived experience that is we're we increasingly ostracised from, or increasingly uh, divorced from, in these sort of modern. But we're temples. not. That's the thing. I mean, because uh, I, I, we, we, I was 
I think that little film I showed you earlier had a ghost bike. <clears throat> folk, folk kind of practice and culture is happening all the time. Mm. You know, if you look at, um, I don't know, gangland culture, you know, they have hand gestures and uh, the, the, a particular form of language that they use. Mm -hmm. or, so folk culture is happening all the time. It's not as if it's, um, uh, it's we just don't recognise it as such. You know, drug culture, you could look at the way, you know, there's a whole folklore around drug production mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. language we talk about drugs and, for instance, and it's, yeah, it's happening all the time. So how would you define folklore under those, that broad definition then? What makes something folklore? Folkloric. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's something that people do to express themselves in an unconscious way. So it gives, I think Ron Hutton says it very well at the beginning of that film, he's, it, it gives an insight into how people love, think, feel, procreate, um, etc. Mm. So, but in a very, I don't, I don't want to say uncultured, un it's not uncultured, it's, it's a very unconscious form of self-expression. And folkloric vernacular, folkloric practice is, is, is exactly that. It's not kind of premeditated or overworked or if you go to these events they're very structured but spontaneous at the same time um, and they change you know things don't they're not set in amber if you look at um, Padstow for instance I keep mentioning Padstow mm. obvious but in the past there's been sort of six obvioses or and then for a period there was only one and then the temperance os came about because everyone was so drunk um, the Victorians added the temperance host, which is, um, uh, and now there's only two. So, but these things mutate, you know, in order for them to stay relevant to the community, they, they change, they change and develop. And uh, if they're no longer relevant, then they die out. But it's a myth to think that these things are, we're losing them. Right. We're losing these folk customs because they're being, I mean, you look at you know, Notting Hill Carnival, that's now uh, folkloric really, because it was generated by a community that came together to celebrate something very specific. You know, folk customs come about not because they're sanctioned by the local council setting it up, like a pageant or something like that, although they are folkloric. They're generally, it's the, it's the community that come together to celebrate something very specific that's pertinent and has meaning to them. So, so folk is sort of by necessity unofficial in a way. It's totally the, it's, unofficial. Yeah. yeah, it's the it's the it's yeah. the sort of use of folk as an analogy. It's the bit it's yeah. the bit under the hedgehog. It's the uh, yeah. it's the yeah. it's the thing not seen but but done and, and meaningful yeah. and things yeah. like that. I mean, it's you know I'm I'm generalising. Well, well, yeah, sure, sure. You can you can look at things like um, in London we've got all the different um, guilds, for instance, and they will have processional uh, customs. Um, the vintners where they sweep the roads and or the I can't remember which one it is they carry process with a boar's head through the streets and so they're sort of sanctioned by an organised group but they're definitely folkloric Hi Chris I just want to pause the podcast for a second I would love to contribute to the blog post at fantasy-animation.org but I am completely overwhelmed with what to write about and I have no ideas what could I do? Well, that's funny you should say that. Um, I can give you some ideas. Can you? Here and now. Sure. Uh, you can write a short editorial that is a, basically an opinion piece. If you've got something to say about a particular film or television programme. Um, if you've read a book recently that touches on issues of fantasy and animation. Or even if you've been to an event or conference that you'd like um, to talk about, do get in touch. Now, you see, I was at a recent event, but it wasn't at one of these academic conferences. That's fine. fine. That's fine. It's, al it's almost as if you knew I was going to say that. Um, it doesn't matter. Any kind of fan event, it doesn't have to be explicitly fantasy or animation. Of course, that would be great. Um, but if you've been to a film festival, seen, a, seen some movies, and you'd like to kind of report or feedback, um, then that would, that would also... We, we, we'd love to hear from you. The other thing I'd like to say is sequence analysis. You're always on at me about films and TV programmes and moments in films. Um, if you have a particular um, bit from a movie, if you're obsessive about a particular sequence, um, if you, we, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear um, your thoughts on a short clip. 
anything that you think speaks to the relationship between fantasy and animation, you can get as specific and as detailed as you'd like. So what you would do with these sequence analysis is you'd take a couple of minutes from a film, try to break down the relationship between fantasy cinema and, fantasy cinema and animation, and write it up as a short blog post. Um, Absolutely. Talk to us beforehand, but I'm, we'd be pretty open to ideas. Get in touch at fantasy-animation.org. It's hard to do. There's always, yeah. if you talk to folklor folklorists, you'll get six different explanations as to what how they define folklore. And I guess part of the, the conundrum is sort of a bit like the word postmodern, right? Is that it's sort of part of its definition is its unwillingness to be so rigidly Confined, defined. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, part, of, yeah. part of what makes something folkloric is that it does, it's not easy to define yeah. uh, and codify in those. Yeah. In those things, right? So, well, 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 I won't ask you just yet what makes the Pogles folkloric, then, because I'll give you time to think. But, but I wonder, Chris. No, I'm thinking. Well, I'm thinking. Does does this shine with any animation discourse? To me, it could it could it could combat be combative because animation is is in many ways not very official. It's very uh, well, in, industrially coded and all this sort of stuff. But and then, and then, well, you take it away, Chris. No, I mean, there's certainly <laughs> something there about. Uh, I don't know. I love the idea that small films are small films. You know, that there's something that that, that that's that sort of, I don't know, you know, you get a lot of this sort of self, I guess, self-exoticizing or self-marginalization. But, you know, as you said, that small films comes about in a, in a garden shed, not in a studio, not in these official kind of um, frames of reference in a, in, a, in a shed. And this is kind of reflected, we, we might say, in the homemade aesthetic of the, of the, the uh, Pogles itself. Um, which give rise to these sorts of I like the idea of the, the boiling landscapes that they they kind of this staccato jerky juttering movement that tells us something about the way that we labour you know that the animation itself visibly labours and that, that the laborious quality um, becomes uncanny but it becomes enchanting I think it's part of the pleasure certainly of the, the, mm. the series itself um, but there is also something about when we think of craft when we think of these kinds of practices um, stop motion animation in particular um, and even Ardman do a lot to promote their their ideas identity in this way that even though they are an official you know they're a, they're a company and a corporation or whatever um people are still working with their hands you know they, they're hunched over um big tables and sets and they're making stuff and the idea of kind of making and, and, and product self-production so all the stuff that you're saying about kind of these folkloric traditions personal unofficial um gets me thinking about these sorts of independent animators or animators that are working outside of of animation as this industrial art form that are working on tabletops. And I think this feeds into a lot of the writing that's been done on craft and the cultural value of craft kind of connects craft in a lot of ways to, to sort of um, uh, women, you know, this, this sort of theme, the female, the idea of craft, um, these gendered connotations of, of craft. Men animate, but women are craft. They, they kind of sew and they knit and all these sorts of things. So there's something really interesting here about animation as folkloric medium, you know, the animation itself. And in this case, the, the Pogles, this kind of stop motion, um, uncanny, these ritual practices, this uncanniness of animation, the way that the illusion of life is imparted onto these these little kind of creatures. Mm. Um, you know, and stop motion as, as as folkloric medium. There's something. There's kind of something in that if we think about the personal and the unofficial and the homemade and the, the kind of tabletop animation. There's something quite enchanting well, about that. Well, to throw my two cents in on this, then there's an interesting thing because I think British animation yeah. is very keen to this narrative of being that you know self-identifying as the outsider, perhaps because of the Hollywood context is always invited. Like stop motion has been sort of claimed as this sort of British art form because it's more handmade it's more quaint all these sort of it's, words yeah it's the kind of core yeah, periphery it, model being it, acted out absolutely. through cell and stop motion but, but that is a long tradition yeah. within english folk storytelling and traditions of the fantastic and um there's lots of I mean, there's probably so many reasons behind it that, that, that to name just one is a bit churlish but um a scholar named colin manlove writes about um the english folk folklore or the english fantastic as being fundamentally rooted in uh post norman invasion anxieties and that the whole thing is about um, you know, a, a top, you know, a trying to go up from from a top down imposition, trying to push back up against it, and and mm. basically we haven't gotten over that as a sort of national <laughs> zeitgeist. And so there's something about the characteristic of English uh, folklore that's different from European folklore in that it is it, it likes to identify itself as a subversive underside rather than things like that. So it does sort of tie in mm. thematically, at least, with what you're saying. Um, You've had enough time now, Simon. Why are the Pogles uh, folkloric? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. um, I mean, small films, I think Oliver Postgate and Peter Fermin were very interested in folklore mm -hmm. in terms and folk stories because if you look at 
Nog in the Nog and uh, yeah, sure. lots of their other animated films. They were all drawing on sort of uh, you know, dragons mm-hmm. and there's the, the what's what was the Welsh one the the character anyone? We'll edit that in. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, either the engine. Oh, the engine. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, the characters there. So they were very interested in folk stories. I think I, I went to see them interviewed once at the NFT uh-huh. uh, NF yeah, National Film Festival. Yeah, um, years and years and years ago on stage, and um, they talked a lot about British folk tales uh, as being a source of inspiration. And the Pogos, you know, they. they feature the fairy realm, mm-hmm. they, there's magical talking plants. So um, obviously those, those interests were being expressed through the films, particularly in the Pogos of the first series, which features a pretty scary witch oh. character who, um, I, I always found it interesting the way she's banished. Do you remember how she, they, Mr. Pogel actually gets rid of her? She, he actually asks her to become nothing. That's right. Yes, she becomes yeah. nothing. I mean, the, mm. uh, the the idea that you could banish, you could make somebody into nothing, I thought it was a fantastic, fantastic idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay. Uh, I have, a, I have, a, I have a, a, a question. I'm just I'm just interested. I think in as as somebody who's coming from outside, I think to this this program, I wonder whether you had a you have a preference for the first or the second series. Like, are you? Uh, Obviously, there's perhaps less to go on in terms of the first first mm-hmm. run of episodes. So I, I, maybe it's two questions in one. It's I wondered if you have a preference for a particular series, uh, and then also maybe a, do you have a favourite episode? Because there's there's lots, but there's you know I, uh, it's not something that's ran for a long, long time. In in yeah. com- comparatively, I yeah, think yeah. you know there are. Yeah. So I wondered if you had favourite episodes. Is it difficult to pick an, a kind of favourite episode, it, it, or is I it mean, from the is it from the second season onwards because you prefer those, or I just wonder what your take no, I on love is. The, I love them all. I think they're. Um... Yeah, I, it would be very... I mean, I do particularly like the one with the witch. Yeah. Um, because it's uh, it, it's more um, out there than the rest <laughs> of the series, in a way. Um, and the fact that the Beeb thought it was too scary for children. Um, of course, kids love being scared. Yeah. I, I don't, don't, I've never understood why they got rid of the witch. I thought mm. she was fabulous. But no, I, I, I can't pull out a particular, particular episode yeah. being a favourite. But if, if I had to, it would be that one. Yeah. Um, Kids, kids love being scared. Yeah. Parents don't love dealing with kids who are scared. I think it's yeah, the issue. Yeah, usually that. Is, is that because you're quite right? Like most of the most vivid childhood memories I have of watching any kind of media was when I was petrified. Yeah. Uh, well, and, Doctor Who, and you'd Doctor rewatch Who. it because you were petrified. Yeah. You'd attempt to try and understand it, or at least yeah. um, relive the emotion until you've I grasped mean, it, or something. It does like make that. it surprises me because a lot of the sort of rhetoric of the first first six episodes is. And certainly the role of the voiceover, I think, in, in the episodes, when it's sort of talking to the spectator, it's saying, I bet you've never, you know, I bet you've never seen a, a pogo law. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think at one point in the, isn't it the second, yeah, it's in, it's in the second episode of Silver Crown when um, the, the baby is revealed, or on the, on the top of the plot, that Mrs. Pogo says, tell us what it is, us. As it's something very inclusive, and that kind of community aspect, I thought, is, is borne out in the way that the, the voiceover encourages us to enter into this world you know and then there's a few point of view shots which I thought were fabulous of Mr Pogel as he looks around the space but very inclusive and then when Mrs Pogel starts saying yeah tell us what it is there's something really fascinating about that these little gestures to a community of people Mm. that are watching so I I can see why it would be scary but it's surprising it surprises me because you say children's like being scared there's something very inclusive I thought about the about the series that we can kind of come in together and explore something we're part of this we're part of this in some way yeah. Can I ask a question about belief in, in the sense that I, I'm, I know you mentioned in, in personal response, uh, correspondence we had about sort of some of this chiming with, did you say that the, the, the fairy realm you've mentioned already on the podcast and there's a certain practice surrounding this that this is alluding to or something, or, 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 or there is a certain uh, practice or, or a folkloric sort of um, engagement with fairies and fairy right. culture and things like that. I wonder if you could say any more about that or whether I picked well, up Well, it's such a, an ancient, I mean... You know, uh, folk tales surrounding fairy lore are mm-hmm. really, really old, um, and that notion that there is uh, another race of beings that run in parallel to the one mm-hmm. you know, that we know that we are um, is an incredibly old, sure. old notion. So the Pogos are exactly that. They're, they're these beings that run alongside the known world, mm-hmm. um, and the fairy realm. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's the idea that uh, time. Is di- runs on a different level. When often people 
claim to have been taken into the fairy realm and when they come back it, for them it's been a couple of hours but actually people have died mm. and it's I love those, that, that notion of uh, time warping and changing because mm. um, it's like a parallel universe that they enter but that's, well that's really mm. interesting though like if you think about animation the, and the labour of animation the way that time works you see mm. on screen what seconds yeah and we're told quite explicitly I think in a lot of the promotional material around animation as a as a craft practice that it takes a long time the animation of this nature mm. takes a long time to produce and and maybe the, the recent writing within animation scholarship on on craft and the value of craft is a response to the digital as you said earlier right. it's kind of post-digital what do we mean by craft now um stuff looks too perfect to be considered a process of craft at all so there's something kind of interesting there but the time element is really interesting with regards to animation because what we see on screen is not is not time in the same way there is a temporal dimension to animation because of the labor that goes on between the frames between what we see and what we're seeing in an hour and a half animated feature film is three years there's something interesting yeah. about especially the stop motion um i, I think the word fe- I, i'm i'm taking this from um rena warner's writing so i'm probably um bastardizing this but uh i think she traces the word fairy back to the anglo-saxon word faltum which I think means uh, either fate or time. Uh, they're time tales. Well, look at that. Um, time tales. Yeah, because yeah. they're about... Well, they're a, and this is actually... The, the second part of my question about sort of belief was that they're, they're tales to help people reckon with the abstract nature of their lives in, in, a, in, a, mm-hmm. in a society in which they don't have necessarily the scientific um, uh, tools to offer alternative solutions to the problem. So they are... Yeah. Stories, I think her phrases that help that allow people to agree with fate, you know, or agree right. with forces beyond their control and, and fathom. And so the, the issue about belief is that I'm, you know, I, I'm, as someone that writes on fantasy, one of the ways in which fantasy is often um, separated from folklore is that fantasy storytelling, at least European fantasy storytelling, comes out as a post Enlightenment, post uh, rational age mode of storytelling. And yeah. it's different because. Um, because folklore is engaging with a, a worldview that is folkloric, whilst fantasy is sort of almost has an ironic um, gaze to it, because the whole point of fantasy is that I am telling you a story that contains things that I know and you know are not real, mm. but I will, we will enjoy them anyway. Um, so, so a lot of fantasy scholars are very keen to prize apart folklore, which is stories in a folkloric sensibility, and fantasy, which is actually quite a rationalistic way of thinking, because it's... Here are some things that don't exist, but let's enjoy with them anyway. Yeah. Um, so I guess the well, the belief I was interested in is, is that you know is with with contemporary folk practice, um, wh- where does the role of belief come into this? Is this um, a, a performative, communal aspect that they're in, that they're enjoying for the sort of community? I mean, I'm sure it means different things to different people, but I was curious what you would think it means, um, yeah. or is it you know, I'm worried about getting to nostalgia of some bygone age that we've gone by with these things, so I'm sure they're living, breathing working mm. things So yeah, um, no, that notion of nostalgia plays on yeah, some of them play on that, but for the most part, they're, yeah. it's just a, a means of a community coming together to celebrate something that's very specific to them um, that they're intensely passionate about, yeah. and in terms of belief, I'm, I was just trying Trying to think, there's there's um, a particular one called Burning the Bartle, and I can't remember where where it takes place. It's somewhere in the Midlands. Oh, you're. you're I'm gonna. Look, I'm yeah. gonna do, Chris. I'm, I'm definitely not gonna look this up <coughs> live. Um, yeah. And and there's uh, the belief that this this character, the Bartle, is it, he looks like a guy. You know, it's mm-hmm. made a figure made out of stuffed clothes that gets carried through the. Town. But there's the, the, the belief that um, by touching the bottle you transfer your any bad luck or ill you know, if right. you feel you've been ill wished or and the the bottle is sort of sacrificed basically um, so he he becomes a sacrificial figure in order to sponge the sort of villagers bad luck or, okay. or illness or whatever it is that they want to transfer to the bottle so. I've lost the thread now. Well, the, the, I guess the be, are we supposed <laughs> to believe, about belief, in, the, belief yeah. in the power of the Bartle, or is it yeah, sort of yeah, more yeah, of a, a or, yeah. or the belief that, you know, by, by touching up and, 
Yeah. I mean, belief's such an interesting word anyway, because, like, you know, I have a perennial. It's West Witten. Oh, so it's the it's the Wednesday Dow to tie into um, Wallace and Gromit and Arden. It's the Wednesday Dow village of West Witten. There you go, burning Bartle. Anyway, sorry. Yes, no. um, Yes, believe, and there are levels like you know. Basically, I have a perennial. My mother is a is an arch atheist. She's very rationalistic in her worldview, and yet if I put an umbrella up inside the house. Oh, really? Um, you know, it's, so you know, and, and it's that classic, like, what, what do you believe will happen mm. if you put this umbrella up? And mm. it's like, well, nothing, but you still can't do it. Yeah, you yeah. know, there's <laughs> that almost, um, almost muscle memory level of belief whereby we still can't do it because no one does do it. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, these sort of stories or rubbing things, but I know Touching I'm very interesting by all those sort of things that we all do it. And, you know, I'm a, fo- I'm a football fan and I, you're not allowed to tell me that, the game, that, that my team will win. 10 minutes before the end of the game because obviously <laughs> that means we won't right. uh, and I have to make the same cup of tea at the same time because last week it worked and, and you know because you know, Portsmouth definitely yeah, worked yeah, like that the, yeah because the fate of yeah, the fate of my team rests on me making a hot drink at the right time but That's these like are really CD, interesting well absolutely yeah, yeah. yes it is all those things yes yeah, so, well we can talk about that if you like but we haven't <laughs> got time um, but it, I, it's an interesting way in which these things figure into people's practice and, and thought mm. process because you can believe without believing and you can not believe while still basically acting and thinking yeah. as if you do believe. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, 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 but these sort of, these, these traditions, do you see them more as sort of, um, do you see them as traditions? I guess you don't. I think you said earlier you, you see them as... No, well, it's, no, for, it's for the most part, they are traditional yeah. traditions. But how, you, there's this sort of running joke with folklorists is how long does something have to happen before it becomes a tradition? <laughs> so people talk about the Notting Hill Carnival now being a tradition yeah. because it's been going on for so long. But yeah, how long is, I mean, if you think of how families will have um, catchphrases or they'll have a particular relative who has a, a personal, strange personal habit or something. So you'll say, oh, he's doing Auntie May. Or So we, we sort of all... We all develop our own folklore on on so many different levels, but we just never think of it in that those mm. terms. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So so folklore as it is seen and practiced and hopefully one day showcased within your museum will be, is, is more a sort of I don't know community <coughs> agreed register of which you can communicate these kind of thoughts. I guess I guess so. Yeah. yeah. But uh, as I said, I'd, I'd like the museum to actually have a much broader remit than just the seasonal. Customs and events. Yeah, I would like it to look at um, things like drug culture and um, slang and I don't know secret language like Polari in the nineteen sixties and fifties that was like a gay uh, language that was a coded codified right. but that drew on things like um, uh, Yiddish phrases and um, gypsy slang and all sorts of different. Round the Horn, it's mm-hmm. Kenneth Williamson you know, used all that Polari, Dolly Old Eek and whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, so it will look at those sorts of things as well, because that, that's, that's how folk practice evolves and develops. So if you look at those things, you can then look at something like, that's historic and wonder why that, that... Because we don't know half the reasons for most of them. Like Padso's May Day, we've no idea why you'll get different stories from different Padstonians as to why they, where it came about, how it came about. Um, some of them we know, but the very old ones, like the Abbot's Bromley Horn Dance, we've no idea why. You know. And the antlers are reindeer, which aren't even indigenous to this, this country. And they date from, sort of, I think it's 1075. They, they, they um, carbon dated them and a bit chipped off one year. Is it because of all these unofficial, like you know, you said that people don't know where these things come. This that, that goes back to the unofficial nature of this. Lots of mm. unofficial stories and, and narratives that play out that support ritualism, and yes. traditions, and, yeah. and tradition, yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But people I... love ritual. Ritual yeah, is yeah. so important. You know, we do it. We do. We construct rituals all the time. Well, if anyone's listened to this podcast and you know we're on episode however many now, they will pick up on the the ritual of Alex's impossible, impossible question and things like that. <laughs> and, the, and then, and sadly, the, probably the ritual of saying goodbye. And actually, and yes, well, they, which is which is what we'll do in a second. Yeah, actually, and, and probably they're doing their ritual washing up whilst they're doing yeah, it. Turning it off there. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, do we have any more thoughts before we leave Pogel's Wood behind? Do we have any more? Uh, have we covered everything you wanted to cover, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I do like the idea of the uncan- uncanny pleasures, yeah. how the uncanny pleasures of the countryside and this idea of that things are buried 
um, kind of connects up with all these folkloric traditions of, of um, the strange, uncanny treatment yeah. and, and, and articulation of the country. So how it's another case up. of the form fat meeting For, yeah, and the, yeah. the, the medium and all this kind exactly. of stuff. Exactly. There's something around the, 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 the narrative of Pogleswood, how that feeds perfectly into the medium of stop motion. As mm. I said, I think it would have a very different quality if it was cell animated. There is something. And, all, and, and given that stop motion itself involves tangible three-dimensional objects that we can physically touch. This is why puppets are so uncanny, because they sit there and I can touch them and hold them and they exist in the world that I exist in, but they don't exist in the way that I see them on screen. And there's something mm. really uncanny about stop motion in particular, um, in a way that doesn't apply to cell animation. I can't hold the cells and play with the cells in the same way. So there's something around the three-dimensionality of it. Um, the regional aspect, I think, is, is sort of fascinating that we are going to a, I don't know. Yeah, well, a non-specific very... region though, right? Yeah. It's vaguely sort of West Country, Cornish. Uh, yeah, West Country. But, yeah. I I've never pinpointed his accent or no, it's trans region <laughs> regionality yeah. or whatever exactly, it is yeah, yeah but you're right it's it's not it's not queen's english is it in it's and... generic country yokor kind yeah. of sure sure accent. Yeah, 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 yeah. so apart from yeah uh, mother notes are about flowers waving in the wind and and there's a bit at the end the second episode where the the plant sort of move it's moving and no one's it's there's no wind it's just or it's just kind of moving and, and i thought yeah that's that's the, sh the whole program isn't it stuff is moving and you're not seeing how it's <laughs> happening but it's mm. it's it's boiling and stuttering and 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 and, that, and there's something about that jerkiness that i think is really yeah really appealing and and i i wonder whether yeah we've we have sort of lost that in, in the age of kind of digital smoothness and the, the swipe screen and things that mm. are all fluid and, and smooth there is there is a place for the as we you know as we know Ardman tells us that there's a kind of place for the imperfect it's interesting. There was a few attempts to remake some of these Watch with Mother cartoons in the last sort of ten years. CGI. There was a Bill and Ben, wasn't there, and an Andy yeah. Pandy, and they both didn't. Well, they've done it, and th with Thunderbirds as well, which oh, yeah, is obviously sure. a slightly different thing, but kind of the yeah. computer animated version of Thunderbirds. <coughs> well, they remade the Clangers as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah so sure. there's some, but there's something quite. We we like to see these stories and these characters look this way. We don't mm. want them to be. We want to see the the fur move in mm. ways that mm. don't quite register with how the... You, know, you want it to sort of the, mm. to vaguely look like a yoghurt pot, not a set yeah, or this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah, you yeah. can kind of... This seems like, as in it's so realistic, has replaced or has, has replaced the seams that we see, you know, the kind of con the, the elements of construction. Um, but yeah, so I think, it, and I, so I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased that we got a chance to talk about a program that I was not familiar yeah. with whatsoever. So, um, yeah. And to be surrounded with, with annuals and to, to yeah. kind of talk about <laughs> yes. the, the folklore. We'll have to get a photo for the, uh, if you don't, words in a minute, Simon, because uh, our listeners would These enjoy props are, yeah, well. wonderful. Mm. Um, so, so we'll say goodbye to Pogel's Wood. We'll put the hedgehog back and uh, climb out of the uh, yeah. of the forest. Uh, <laughs> Simon, before forest. before we go, if you don't mind, we just a couple of. I'm sure our listeners would love to know more about this, the Museum of Folklore, the project you're involved in, and, and any way they could um, help if they can. So do you mind uh, yes. give them give them your sales <coughs> pitch because yeah. it's a really really um, worthy yeah. cause. No, I'd love to. Well, the the um, the Museum of British Folklore is. Um, in development at the moment we're sort of at the fundraising stage so it's we've we've done a whole range of exhibitions over the last almost 10 years now i've been working on this project um and it's at that crunch moment where it could easily not happen or it could absolutely take off and yeah. happen quite quickly um, so we're currently working with an architect uh, we've got a museum's development officer helping out um, but it's yeah, it's a there is no textbook for how to how to make a museum. So it's it's and because it's I don't come from a museum background. I'm a set designer, a day job. Um, it's 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 a hard one because you're kind of making it up as you go along. But I think there's a lot of uh, freedom in that that approach to it, and we're very. Fleet of foot, we can we can set exhibitions up very quickly. We're doing one at the Wheel and Down Museum um, later in the year. Uh, there's an ongoing project to record every single Mor uh, Morris dancing team in the UK because you know, I'm, poor old Morris dancers, they get such a <laughs> bum rap, and uh, I think they're fantastic. And we uh, and we kept thinking about how do you contextualise Morris dance in a museum. So what we're doing is sending out a blank doll, almost like a puppet, actually, about that size, They're sort of 18 inches, 35 centimeters tall, and they then the team dresses dresses the figure in the team kit. But what's nice about them is the um, 
the intensity of them. When, you open the, when I open the box, when they come back, there's something very fetishistic. Quite often, uh, the team will use their own hair. They've cut their hair off and attached wow. it to the figure. Or there'll be a little note pinned. There was a, one that came the other week that said, you know, look under my skirt. And you lifted the skirt of the figure and she was wearing stockings and suspenders. And it's hysterical. So these figures embody a lot of the things that the team represents and how they see themselves. And so it, it's gone beyond just being a dressed doll to actually telling a whole story within itself, which I hadn't anticipated when I set, off, set about uh, you know, doing them. And seeing them en masse as well, there's something uncanny, again, about, about these figures and their, their intensity, which was quite surprising. So yes, I've preambled, I've rambled on a bit. No, so I was going to say, and where, and where can listeners go? So there's a website, there is a... There's a website, the Museum yep. of British Folklore.com and .co.uk. Um, there's a, a small film, which you guys yeah. watched yeah. earlier on, uh, which outlines the aims of the project and why it's important and should happen. Um, Wonderful. Uh, sort of case for support film. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But and if people, people, want, to, watch if people want to help make this happen, as you say, it's at this crucial stage, what, what's the best thing they can do right Money. now? Money. No, to be brutally honest. How do they give you it? Uh, Well, yeah, on the website again, there's a donations uh, page, but it's. I mean, I'm being very flippant. Money, we do actually. Yes, we need funding at the moment, but um, we need. We're looking at uh, a broader, broader range of uh, trustees because I don't know anyone in finance. We're we're sort of digging around trying to find a a financial trustee. So if there's anyone listening to this, that, um, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. father works in finance or something, or mother, or and um, they would be interested in becoming a trustee of a, a, a fledgling charity, then uh, yeah, by all means get in touch. Okay, well please do, uh, uh, listeners, because um, we've yeah, well we watched the video earlier and you can get we'll it on link, the website. Yeah, we will link and we'll it link well. to it as well. Mm-hmm. But it's it's yeah. a really inspiring sort of vision of what it could be, and I and I. I want to go, so, uh, yeah. so someone needs to build it for me. Um, yes. <laughs> if, if you build it, you yeah, will come. I will come, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thanks you, Simon, so much for coming on no, the podcast. No, thank you, pleasure. Um, can they, is there a is there Twitter? Do people, is there a place? There's an Instagram feed. Okay. Uh, there's an Instagram, I didn't even talk about the Museum of Witchcraft and Magic, which is, I'm also the director and owner of, uh-huh. and that's in Cornwall. And that has the same you know, Instagram, Twitter, all of those things. Okay, so, yeah. terrific. Um, great. We'll do, we'll do that. And obviously yeah. you can follow, follow us as well um, at Fan Anim Research, F-A-N-A-N-I-M Research on Twitter. And of course, we're fantasy-animation.org. I'm only doing it because I forget every week to do that. So for once, we've plugged our Excellent. own thing on the yeah. website. Um, right. Uh, another another episode done, another, another wood visited Um Thanks, Simon, again. Thank you, Chris, as always, for joining me. Um, And we'll see you next time. Bye.